House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Michael Hawley is back from Hollywood. That is right. Hello, Al. (laughs) (laughs) And you got your book back. So you get yes. to do some editing now. Get yes, to work. My, editor, my editor has returned it, and it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> good. That's good so, for you. It's yeah. skill, skill growing. And as soon as, as, soon as, you're, as soon as you're done with that, send it to me, and I'll edit it. <laughs> oh, sweet. I will do that. <laughs> You'll be sorry. No. No, I'm a lightweight. I'm a lightweight. Well, here we go. No, I I have to ask. So, did you dress up and watch the Oscars or any of that stuff? Uh, I did not. I was uh, editing. <laughs> so, no. But well, neither yeah. did I. For some reason, I I was not into it. So, I mean, there was going to be no slap this year. How could you follow up a good slapping? <laughs> that is true. I, apparently, there's some good stories. But I did watch the the. The movie that uh, they did, did so well at the Oscars, I actually liked it. They did. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Have you? I haven't seen it yet. All, everything, yeah. all the time, everywhere, all the whatever that is. Exactly. I was very impressed. And then uh, who got uh, that? That lady who got the uh, Best Actress Award. She did a really good job. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that one. Oh, good. Yeah, I still have to see it. I, I just don't have time. Some of us are working. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> I took the day off, okay? Took the day off. Take the year off. Living in Hollywood now, I think. Huh? You know, anyway. Hollywood, that's right. Well, well, speaking of that, so we've got a, a Hollywood writer. No, we've got a great writer here. He's got a new book out, and um, I think he, it's written about me, but I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it's called The Sign for Home, a novel, and it's Blair Fell. So thank you for being here, Blair. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. Nice speaking uh, with you. Yeah, I just saw that it's it mentioned your character Arlo Dilly, and he's young, handsome. And so I thought right away, well, you were taking it off of me. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, you were the physical model for him. Um, I, I hope that's okay. I thought we were keeping that on the down low, but no, yes, no. By, yes. by all means, at that point in my life, I'll take what I can get. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you know, we interview a lot of authors. And now this is a little bit of a different story from what I'm used to um, reading. Or you know, um, So uh, how did you come up, first of all, let's talk about the premise of it. What's the basic premise? And then how you came up with this idea? Okay, the basic premise of the novel is there's this young, uh, death-blind Jehovah's Witness. He's this 20-year-old young man. Uh, who has something called Usher syndrome, which causes him to be deaf and blind. And he's kind of lived this very sheltered life. And then this one summer, his regular Jehovah's Witness interpreter is partnered with this uh, middle-aged kind of radical gay male interpreter. And he and the hero of the book, Arlo Dilly, who's straight, become friends, and they start realizing that the young man's family, his Jehovah's Witness family, has been lying to him, and the girl he thought he lost forever was not maybe lost forever, and he and his gay interpreter go on this journey to find out what happened. That's the basic premise of the book. So, there you have it. 
I was going to say at first, it's a, a deaf-blind young man, Jehovah Witness, walks into a bar. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, but that's, that's very particular. Was there, was there some sort of background? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, for my partner career as a writer, I'm also a, a sign language interpreter for both sighted and sometimes deaf-blind people. So it's been 30 years' experience of working as a sign language interpreter. That certainly is, especially for the other character, uh, Cyril Brewster, which is the, the gay male interpreter. That's kind of based on me and my life and my experiences. Um, all the... The story is fiction, but it's certainly based on real things that happen uh, in my life. And I guess basically the things that it inspired it was I had a deaf-blind friend who wanted me to help him with his, I mean, to be blatantly honest, with his hookup profiles on, on the apps. But he is deaf-blind, and he has some a little tiny low vision, but not enough to kind of set up his profile, answer his email on these hookup apps. And he asked me to help him, and uh, so I took his picture and, and helped him write his profile. And then periodically, this has been going on for a number of years. I will, uh, <laughs> I will copy. Hookups. I will copy. <laughs> no, right, exactly. I copy and paste a letter that says an email into the messages that says, "Hey, I don't check my messages much. Could you contact me via phone or my email?" And then he can use his accessibility equipment to interface with these uh, people and then meet them out in a safe spot where he doesn't tell them he's blind. He only tells them he's deaf. And But he can see, like, if you write really large on a pad of paper, he can see that and he'll meet them out and, um, and hook up. And so uh, that made me start thinking about, I mean, I'm, you know, a gay man of a certain age, and I'm extremely vain, and I've always been very vain, and I'm uh, attracted to voices and faces, and uh, I was wondering, so what happens when I don't have access to that information? What does someone fall in love with, you know, when they're not basing their attraction on, on the visual or the auditory? And, of course, it's not a monolith, and I started interviewing a lot of deaf-blind people, uh, about what they were attracted to, and it just kind of made me excited, and I had a little idea for, I thought it was going to be a play because I had never written a novel before, and so I started jotting it down as an idea for a play, and it, you know, as as other writers will tell you, you know, sometimes the characters are like, okay, no, this isn't what we're going to do. We're going to do this. And it was like, this is going to be a novel. And I'm like, but I don't know how to write a novel. And they said, well, just shut up and sit down and just put the words down and, and we'll show you. And, uh, and I didn't know it would get published. And then I decided to join an MFA program kind of later in life and worked on it there and joined a writer's group, which was one of the greatest things I did. We meet every week. We're meeting tonight after this uh, podcast or this radio program. And uh, every week we bring stuff in. And so I wrote this in another, a first draft of another novel in the writing group and during my MFA program. And when COVID hit, I kind of worked on my rewrites and then thought I need to find out if it's garbage or not. So I asked uh, a novelist friend of mine, James Hanahan. He's a pretty successful novelist. I said, hey, do you know someone I can show this to that can tell me it? Oh, my. And so I can move on to something else. And he said, sure, uh, you can show it to my agent. And the guy, this was, I hadn't graduated from my MFA program yet, so it was 
June, May or June, May of 2020, he told me, he, a week and a half later, he called me and said, can you call me? The agent, uh, Dove Stewart did, and I did, and then he gave me some suggestions for rewrites, which were awesome suggestions, and I worked on that for two months, and then he submitted it in August of 2020, and it sold at auction, and, uh, and then here we are. How long did this take you? A long time. How dare sorry, you? A long time. <laughs> a really long time. It took me eight years uh, to the point of where I submitted it. I, As I said, I didn't know how to write an, a novel. Um, so I wrote 800 pages, which guess what? You don't want to sell 800 That's pages. two novels. <laughs> exactly. It was two novels, but I mean, I still like, I could have done that, uh, but I decided, well, let me try to get it to something. I think I submitted at 457 pages in the final. It was published at 417. Uh, so I cut a ton of stuff. Um, it was, it's a difficult novel to conceive because You have a deaf-blind character. You have this kind of sign language interpreting that people don't know about. So I'm like, how do I get people to kind of understand this but also enjoy this novel that becomes an adventure? It's a coming-of-age story. It's a love story. It's a friendship story. And I want them to enjoy it because I'm not here to write a textbook. But I need them to understand what it is to be deaf and blind, what it is to be a Jehovah's Witness, what it is to be a sign language interpreter who's thrown into this. So I had to find ways to be able to pull the reader in. And it took some time. I gave up. I think like after a third of the novel, I'm like, this is too hard. I can't do this. And I actually wrote a draft of an entire other novel, which I actually forgot about until I was like, oh, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to work on? And then I remembered it. I I still didn't bring it back yet, but I will one day. Um, but then I found the key to it, uh, and that got me excited, and I, I was able to finish it. Well, that's what, it's got to be hard. I know that um, both Michael and I have written novels, but I'm thinking that you, because you have so many, like you said, you have so many, so many things to cover because you're, you you got to explain. The sign language, you've got to explain a lot of the things that you're doing, but you don't want to give too much information because it becomes instructional rather than a story. Exactly, exactly. And I, the worst thing I want to do is bore people. That's like one of my mantras. I don't want to bore anyone. So how can you make it interesting? And I, the device I, I figured for Arlo Dilly, the deaf-blind character, it's told from two points of view. It's told from Cyril Brewster, the the sign language interpreter's point of view, and then it's told from Arlo Dilly, the deaf-blind young man's point of view. And I discovered in a class, not working on the novel, but working on a nonfiction piece, you know, I discovered, because I was writing about that friend I told you about where, who I kind of got the idea from, I was writing a nonfiction piece about, you know, helping him with his hookup apps. And I tested out the second person, and that ended up being the secret for me of being able to bring the reader in to a deafblind person's point of view uh, with the you, the you voice, that right. you are looking at the screen, you're blowing up the letters, you're touching this woman's hand. And it was the thing that kind of really let me get into the book uh, without being didactic, I think. So two points of view, and that's what you're doing. You're just kind of connecting the reader from one point of view, then going into that one. Yeah, no, it starts. It, it starts from uh, Arlo's point of view, and it's it's uh, so it's 
second person present tense uh, in his point of view when he's uh, and also the story is told also with emails with text messages the whole book is about communication all the different ways we communicate and I don't know I mean I, I should like share this with uh, the people that are listening uh, how Cyril and other hearing people that know sign language communicate with Arlo is they sign like a normal deaf person would sign, you know, fingers moving, hands moving, and then Arlo, the deaf-blind person, would put his hands on top of the person's hands and feel the signs. That's called tactile sign language. That's one of the, the main ways uh, deaf-blind people would talk to someone else, would talk to other deaf-blind people, although there are also other forms of communication I get to in the book. And the other way is... Uh, uh, like a refreshable braille display where you, the, like how, how to explain it. So you have a, a keyboard and you type on the keyboard and on the other side of the keyboard is a refreshable braille display. So braille is being printed as you're typing and the deaf blind person feels the braille and he can talk to a sighted hearing person that doesn't know sign language. So there's all these different forms of communication that are happening in the book. Uh, and yeah, I, wow. hopefully that was useful information. Yeah. No, I was, I, I never knew that existed. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, a lot of people don't know about this world, and that, that was the other thing that I think that inspired me to write this was there's this entire world that's happening within the world in which we live that no one knows about, and the only people that do know about are people in their family or sign language interpreters, tactile sign language interpreters. I mean, like the the interpreter character, Cyril, I was once, when I first talked to my first deaf-blind person, I knew nothing about doing tactile sign language. I was a sign language interpreter, and you don't really train specifically to be a tactile sign language interpreter. You study to be an interpreter. And this was many, many years ago, and they were like, oh, it's a deaf-blind guy. Just do your sign language, and they'll feel it. That's it. And that was all the information I got. There was no training. They just shoved me into the situation, and this person is feeling my signs, and I'm like, oh, my God, there is no way they're going to get anything from what I'm, I'm doing. There's no way. There's no way. Because not only do I have to be, you know, saying what you're saying to them, because I'm interpreting, I have to describe what's happening in the room on top of the interpreting to the deaf-blind person. And it turned out this deaf-blind person was getting everything, even things I didn't know I was communicating, they were getting, and I was blown away. Like, how how are they getting this from my, my, oh my. sign language? And they were, and over the years, I've had this experience, not like this first time, but like just flabbergasted at how much deaf-blind people can perceive of the world, you know, when they're given the accessibility, things like an interpreter or, uh, you know, a screen braille communicator, and that there's so much that they're getting in this other way that they're they're getting it, and it's just really remarkable. And I just have this theory, they just end up being smarter than everyone else. But people don't have access to this world because you don't know sign language. You know, all these people don't know sign language, and there's people that do know sign language that are fearful of, of, of getting into this uh, way of communication with a deaf-blind person. Um, but... They're there. They're having these rich lives. I was talking to a, a deaf-blind buddy the other day, and we're in the park in Thompson Square Park, and he's just 
talking about all like his romantic assignations he's having and all this sex and stuff. And I'm thinking everyone's like looking at us and they're probably thinking we're talking about religion and he's talking about these like hot bodies he's feeling, you know, and he's like a horny mother, you know, and, and so all this is happening and it's just like, I, I, Wanted one to share what my life is like as a sign language interpreter because it's weird. And, How dare you! Um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be doing that. I don't, I'm sorry for the <laughs> cursing thing. Um, it's it's a really unusual job because you one day I will be on my back on the floor of surgery looking up to someone who's getting spinal surgery signing to them the next day I'll be in a dog grooming class with a deaf Russian person that learned ASL. You know, all these are real things that have happened to me and. You know, you're always in this, you know, space between the hearing world and the deaf world or hearing world and deaf blind world and you're being privy to these people's personal lives and it's just such an interesting space to be in. And the book gets into all the ethics about when you get really close to your consumers, um, as I often do, and like the ethical ramifications of that. Um, and also the fact of, you know, in the book it's about like this gay agnostic middle-aged gay agnostic and a straight young Jehovah's Witness and that situation has happened to me many many times in the sense of being with someone who they're very their entire you know world tells them they should hate me and should shun me and we end up becoming really best friends because uh, I embodied his voice. I embody these other people's voices that are talking to him, and he trusts me to do that. And so that's that's where the whole friendship buddy thing, you know, story comes into the book because they become very close. Well, that's so, got to be a totally different way of writing. Like when I when I see your history of, you know, working in television, like with Queer's Folk and things like this, uh, a lot of that type of writing is not as in-depth as quickly with the characters, you know? Uh, you're, you're, you have to be more cue-orientated to get to get the information you want about the character on the television screen so people get it. But it's quicker. Um, and this sounds a lot more um, in-depth. Uh, yeah. How do, you, how do you do that and be comfortable with it? Because a lot of it is... Um, you have to put yourself into these characters wholeheartedly. You can't just kind of brush over them. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, that's, I mean, one of my main writing methods, I started life as an actor and, uh, and then started writing plays because I didn't think I could write a novel and wrote plays and then wrote little television. And, but my writing method has always been to put myself into the character of the person. Uh, and I mean, which is why I knew I had to start with a novel that was in the first person. Actually, everything was written in the first person in the first draft. And then when I discovered that voice, that's when Arlo went into the second person. But like, that's how I write is I get into the character and see what they're seeing. And with the deaf blind character, you know, it's all about, okay, what do I smell? What do I touch? What do I taste? And I can't use any of the visual senses or the sound senses when I'm in the character of Arlo Dilly. It, it just has to be from that one, from those senses that he perceives the world. And there's a ton of things you can perceive with that. But yeah, it's different than the TV writing, of course. Um, although uh, there's a director that's trying to make this into a TV show, which I hope happens. Um, but uh, yeah, I better work. 
Yeah, I think it would work. Also, like, frankly, it like, like where you said it's, this is like a, a more deep, detailed thing that you don't have to do on, like on the screen, it would also just save a lot of time because right. you can see what's happening where I have yeah. to describe all this physical stuff in the writing where on the screen you'll see that. I was, the director showed me a video of where there was some sign language in the short film. Um, and they did something really cool, which if it does ever get made, I hope he does, is where they took, rather than the closed captions or the captioning being at the bottom, which I think right. sucks. I think it sucks when you see a foreign film like that. The captions were up near their mouths and near their hands. And it was just like oh. so much better. And then the film was I don't even I don't even remember what the name of it was. It was stupid, but uh, they ended up being not deaf people at all. They ended up being hearing people. And then when they started talking, they brought the captioning down to the bottom of the screen, and I felt assaulted because I realized, okay, now if I'm looking down there, I'm I, it's really hard for me to pay attention to what's happening up there. And why did you do that? Why did you feel that was necessary to push the words down at the bottom so people that needed that access? don't get the full thing. And the words are beautiful. I mean, I'm a writer, so I like words. Put them up near their face. Anyway, yeah. that's my thought. Yeah. Unless, of course, they're naked. Then you can... <laughs> Put them near their genitals, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's important. Come on. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, so this, this sounds very important to you in a sense of, um, okay, so there is the love story. There's the friendship story. There's a lot of things going on here. But um, w when someone reads this book at the end of it, you want more than just that, right? There is a subtext. There's some sort of meaning going on here, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what people always say about the book, I, I mean, I guess people that don't like it just don't talk to me. But it seems a lot of people <laughs> really like the book a lot. And they always say, I love the book so much and I also learn so much so the learning happens but it's hopefully a little bit more subtle how it happens but you do learn a ton through the book but you mostly have a good time I do want to say one of my favorite emails I got recently and this is a true story a woman said all these great things about my writing in the book and said she had changed her will in order to give money to this thing called I Can Connect, which provides uh, equipment for deafblind people who can't afford it. She changed her will. So I'm like, wow. yes, wow. I, I want my book to do something in the world. And there's like one evidence that it did. So that made me really, really happy. Wow. That is pretty incredible. I've never had anything like that. Sorry, you serial killers, Al. <laughs> uh, serial killers will uh, thank you while they're in prison? I don't well, know. You know, that's, that's something. Uh, I mean, you know. might teach them a skill or something, so hopefully <laughs> you know how to get rid of the body. Yeah, there's got to be there's, something. There's learning good. everywhere. There's <laughs> learning everywhere. Well, and like, hey, by all means, you know, pass me on as the person that can play Arlo. You know, go for it. No, actually, uh, well, you know, when you, when I come to Arlo then, who is Arlo? Where did you get that character? Or is this something part of, of course, all writers, some of you are, a lot of you, different degrees of you will go into that character. But where did it originate? And to follow this, what kind of relationship do you have with this character? It's, it's interesting. Um, Arlo was really hard to find. Like, Cyril was easy, because Cyril was me, but tall with red hair. 
Um, that's the only change in him. It was basically me. The Arlo character, you know, first, it was weird. It's like in the, the second book I'm working on now, the main character also was hard to find, but then I finally found him. Like, he's like way more me, where Arlo is not really me at all. And it was just kind of like this person first dealing with the accessibility equipment, dealing with being a Jehovah's Witness, you know, dealing with the stuff. And then it was, I think I find the characters and I found Arlo more when I got into the stuff that wasn't necessarily pretty about him. You know, he's a good-looking guy, he's a nice guy, a decent guy, but he's also, he's a, a horny guy. You know, he's 23 years old, and he's angry. He's really angry at these Jehovah's Witness women that just want to, like, learn sign language from him. And, you know, it's like, why aren't they interested in me as a man? And, like, and into the things that, like, where he, like, would really like to have sex with them. And, and getting more into those aspects and his anger when he finally realizes how his family and others have lied to him, that's when I started to find him, and he became like this this whole character. None of the characters in the book are, except for the serial character, which is based on me, none of the characters are based on any one person. Uh, like, because uh, my... I, as an interpreter, I have these ethics I have to follow where I can't share any stories of the 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 people that I work with. That's the confidential. I don't. However, these incidents of like nurses, you know, saying, "Oh, I know they understand me. They read lips." It's like no lady or man. They don't read lips. You know, why don't we ask them? Hey, do you read lips? Do you read? You know, there's always this assumption that deaf people read, and you can't assume that because you don't know where they're from, you don't know what their education was, and a lot of uh, deaf people have something called language deprivation because their parents were possibly told by some doctor, which often happens, don't learn sign language because then your child won't learn to read lips and they end up not having a language until they go to school, which means they have this language deprivation. So all these assumptions get made. And so those situations that are in a book like, have happened to me, not specific incidences that I write about in the book, but have happened over and over again. Uh, you know, cops thinking that a, a deaf person is trying to fight them when they're trying to sign to them. Things like that have happened in the world. That ha I haven't seen personally, but I've read about that happening in the world. Uh, so, yeah. So that's how, like, those things, it's, it's not any one character that I've met in life, but just kind of like the, the general feeling of, yeah, I have one client uh, who I've worked with since she was 18 years old, and I'm, she's almost 40, and I'm still working with her. Uh, and I've seen so many things that she's gone through in her life, and I truly love this woman. And it's kind of like that relationship I'm showing, not that specific one, but just in general, these amazing relationships I've got to have as a writer and sign language interpreter. What do you think this book has done for you? Like, how, this, how has this changed you, this whole process, this, this eight-year-long process, and now it's out, and people can read it, pick it up, and it looks like you're doing well with it. People are enjoying it. They're giving you good feedback. How, how has this changed you? You know, it's, to be honest, it's changed me a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I, maybe you guys can relate to this, but, yeah, I was a playwright, and I wrote for television, but I always, like, to me, that I never felt really like a real writer, and I always like doubted myself, even though, right. 
you know, won a bunch of awards and stuff like that. I always questioned whether I was a real writer. And I never even dreamed of writing a novel. That was something – I always tell this story because it was true. When I was young, I really wanted to fall in love with a writer. I didn't really want to be a writer myself. I wanted that to be my lover. Um, and so I'm like, well, i got to do this myself. And um, when I got the agent <laughs> – Probably the most exciting day of my life, uh, which it's, it's, it sounds dumb, but I, I, people are like, oh, when you got that book and you opened the box and you saw the – no, that was okay. Really, it was, it was getting the agent, and, it was, and then it was like, I don't even ca- – I remember telling myself, I don't even care if the book doesn't sell. At least I know some people really love my writing, blah, blah, blah. That, of course, I cared if it sold. And then when it sold, those were the two most exciting days. And then I thought, well, this will wear off. Like everything in your life wears off, the excitement, and then you want more because I have the disease of I want more, more, more. But I'll tell you, you know, something something did change. It was just like, like it's like it's – like, I'm a writer. People actually really like my writing. People really like my book. And that was like, wow, I get to do this then for the rest of my life, and I will always know I was able to publish something meaningful that I've always wanted to write. And and that actually kind of just, it really kind of feels like, hopefully, it's only been a year, like, no, because it's been two years since it was sold, but like a permanent change like that i know that i can do this doesn't mean i'll ever get anything else published who knows but that i did this made me feel like i could walk i this is awful i shouldn't say this because i i don't think people have to publish to be good writers i definitely don't think that and i but for me it just was meaningful for me just because i always 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 doubted myself as a writer right so that I was going to say, but uh, do you still have that doubt, in a sense? No. No. Oh, it's gone, hey? So you're getting lucky a lot? That's good. You're on the the apps now, and everybody's after you now? Everybody wants that writer? Absolutely. Um, No. No, it's it's more just like for myself. It's like... In this next book, who knows? It's a very different book. It has nothing to do with deafness or deafblindness or interpreting. And who knows if it will sell, but I'm enjoying the hell out of working on it. And the other... I'm working on a few other novels as well that I'll work on more after the second one is done. But it's more just like I know I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I'm hoping I keep that. And mind you, when the second novel goes out, if it doesn't sell, maybe all that confidence I have will just go down the toilet. Um, Very possibly it will. This year has been idyllic. It's been... An idyllic year for a debut novel for me. And, I mean, it could be better. I, I also had the jealousy things. Like, like there was five of us that were chosen as Simon & Schuster Selects. And uh, one of them, besides being on, on Jenna What's-Her-Name's TV show, was, like, picked by Barack Obama as his favorite book of the year. Um, and, yeah, I had just a little bit of envy. Just a little bit. Just a tiny bit. Um but uh, but mostly it's just been this this great year where I've gotten to hear from the readers in really nice ways and 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 had both deafblind people, deaf people, and hearing people tell me how much they they got from the book and it had changed them in their perception of other people that they didn't know. So it's like you couldn't ask for more than that, you know. Yeah. Well, you got to meet me. 
<laughs> I did. I did. Who will be playing Arlo Dilly at the, your your closest cinema? Yes. Well, speaking uh, of that, Blair, um, uh, I like the, the Al always asks this one. We steal this from him, but it's about Al now. Yeah. Do you ever off people uh, that you know? <laughs> I do. <Yeah>. Books? I do. <laughs> Um, do I ever? No, there's no one that dies in this book. No, actually, there's a dead person before the book starts. That's based on a true story. Um, do I get revenge on people? You know what's funny is I actually try to get some revenge. Like when I in like a first draft of it, um, I there was this like one interpreter I really hate, and I was like, I'm going to put her in this book. That snooty ass woman. I'm going to put her in here, and I didn't. I mean, I think I put her in here, and then I just like cut that. There's funny, like, there are, like, little, like, there's a, this character who's, like, one of the the dicey characters that does some really immoral things in this, this interpreter, and it was all based on this one interpreter I met, who wasn't necessarily a bad person or anything, but years and years ago, because she, I remember she's like, oh, I have to go to the dentist tomorrow, I just wish they would just tear all my teeth out, I have very soft teeth, and uh, I was like... That is the most horrific thing I have ever heard, and I'm going to write about you someday. And so I based a whole character on that. Um, so the Molly character is based on this interpreter that wanted all her teeth ripped out because they were soft. Um, but yeah, no, re- no revenge. No one killed yet in this or in the next one. The one that I wrote was actually um, was actually a detective novel. The one that I I wrote after I gave up on this one and wrote a draft of and then put away and forgot about was uh, <laughs> was a deaf-blind detective novel. The detective was deaf and blind or was it? <laughs> yeah, the main character who's like doing this detective work is deaf and blind with with some sighted uh, companions. Like, like a private detective? Like he's like Sherlock. Yeah, like private detective stuff. And like, uh, he, yeah, and then the, his like, he's like Sherlock and then his Watsons are like various interpreters and other people. So I'll, I'll try to kill some people there. Do you guys want to be in it? <laughs> I, do throw the, I do throw the names of people that I know uh, in the work. There's this character named Hannah in the book who's this hot Belgian woman, and she's named for the daughter of one of my best Belgian friends. And his other son, or his son, Wout, is the name of the Hannah woman's son. So I, I took two of the names from his family, and then... Cyril and Arlo, I just invented. Molly, I just invented. Molly came from some James Joyce thing. Um, but yeah, in the new book, I, I'm, I, I'm throwing a lot more people's names in it because people really get a kick out of when you throw their names in the book. But no, <laughs> no dead people. No one I'm killing or anything like that yet. You seem to bring in um, religion as well. Now, is there a particular reason or does it have a, a place in the book as a, as a situation like a character? So... I went to very religiously conservative schools when I was young, from like uh, nursery school to sixth grade. I, I went to like very conservative, especially first grade through sixth grade. I went to a conservative Lutheran school where they would beat us and uh, do all sorts of terrible mind game stuff to us. And then I was like born again for a week and like just struggling with religion. My parents weren't super strictly religious people. They were religious. But my, my grandfather was Armenian Orthodox and he married my grandmother who was Jewish Orthodox. And then they raised their daughters by whatever church they were closest to. So my mom was actually Presbyterian. Um, 
So I had that weird religious upbringing. And when I work on something, I tend to just kind of harvest anything that's in my vicinity because, like, I'm going through a first draft, so I need help. And my team, I talk about this in the book, in New York City, interpreters are are generally broken down like this. They're like these really cool, brainy, you know, feminists, or they're gay or lesbian. That's very common or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or their children of deaf adults. So we work with a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses in New York. Out west, it's Mormons. Um, are you know, religions that proselytize using languages that is not their first language. Uh, so you have a lot of Jehovah's Witness interpreters. But I was working this one summer at a car maintenance training program, interpreting, and my team was an ex-Jehovah's Witness, and she told me these amazing stories about her growing up, and I'm like, oh, I wanted Arlo to be coming from the strict religious family like I did, not religious family, but religious upbringing like I did, and maybe he should be Jehovah's Witness, and so that's where that came from, and it just kind of is a, you know... You know, the religious upbringing is this thing where in in Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't want their children to go to college. They don't let their children play with children that aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They do all this thing to protect them from the world. And where you have this young man who's trying to engage with the world, and he has this limit of he can't hear and he can't see, but he has all these other ways to engage with it, and his guardians are preventing him from truly engaging with the world with all that there is to engage with the world if you're deafblind, and there is a lot of ways they can engage with the world, thanks to things like the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's so many ways that a deaf and deafblind person can engage with the world, but his family's keeping him from that. And to me, that keeping him from that was like a thing that religion did for me in ways as, you know, I grew up as a, a young gay kid, you know, in the closet, you know, and hearing all these things about how I was not only going to hell for that, but I had a Jewish grandmother, so she was going to hell for that, you know, and my parents weren't going to church, so they're going to go to hell for that, and uh, and so just, like, kind of, like, incorporated that into the book, which I, you know, was to hell. Yeah, I, exactly. Exactly. I'm definitely going to hell. Um, a lot of people ask me, like, because I, as I said, I work with a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, whether I've gotten any blowback from that, and not in person. Like, I don't know, like, Interpreters, we always have these lists of like, oh, I don't work with these people because we like people we don't like. Like that woman I, I told you I was going to take revenge on, but I didn't in the book. Um, and so I don't know, maybe I'm on, on all their like, do not work with this person who's going to, you know, be a, a you know, a servant of Satan, uh, which is probably how they look at me. But on Goodreads, on Goodreads, I have like really great reviews on Goodreads. Almost all of the bad reviews, the few bad reviews, are from people that are angry about the Jehovah's Witness thing. Um, so, what are you going to do? Yeah, but, right. Well, I mean, because in a, in, a, in a sense, it's not like you're, I don't want to say you're, it's not like you're slamming Jehovah's Witness directly. I think you, it, aren't you writing it as a setting? You know, this is where he came from. Well, no, the, the two of the, the two, the two evil characters are both Jehovah's Witnesses. But it's, um, what I try to do in the book is like, these are these specific Jehovah's Witness characters. But I do have both Arlo and Cyril to accept, but Arlo, the Jehovah's Witness, kind of talk about the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, which are, 
you know, a little quirky, you know, the 144,000 that are going to go straight up to heaven without having to wait to Judgment Day. They have this specific number. It's 144,000 people because when Jehovah's Witnesses were first formed, there was 144,000. And so they thought they were going to, you know, Judgment Day was like 10 years away. Well, it turns out it wasn't, so now that means something different. Uh, and just all these things. So it's not that I'm slamming the religion. I'm just describing the religion as it is. You know, they're not allowed to celebrate Halloween or Christmas or birthdays or anything like that. They're not allowed their kids associate with other kids. I'm just, if, that's not slamming. That's just describing what he grew up with. Yeah. But the, the, his guardian, Brother Birch, is a Jehovah's Witness. He's an elder in the church. And I kind of just describe those things that my Jehovah's Witness informants inform me happens in the church. And, of course, people are taking this as a slam to the faith. And it's not slamming the faith. I think all religions, you know, are myths, you know, but I think I, as an agnostic, have just as a right to be agnostic as they have a right to their uh, belief that they subscribe to. So I don't think it's slamming it. But it is not just like, oh, he just grew up there and I don't say anything about it. I describe it, and I describe it accurately. And that is taken as slamming because when you read it in this context, it's like, oh, wow, they really do that? They really believe that? And like, yeah, they do. Yeah. But then Arlo is shocked when he discovers things. Oh, yeah, he's, like, shocked when he realizes, you know, that there's all this equipment he could have access to that, it, like, he has a screen braille uh, reader, but, like, he has a really old version of it. Like, there's new ones that can connect right to your iPhone. He doesn't have an iPhone. iPhones are, like, the best thing for accessibility for both, like, deaf, blind, and all other sorts of uh, disabilities. It's an amazing tool, and his family doesn't let him have that. So these accessibility things, but they've also lied to him about all the people that he was, as a child, he was sent to a boarding school, and he made, like, the best friends of his life and fell in love with this young woman, and he thinks that he has no access to them anymore and was told things happened to them that didn't happen to them. Oh, okay. So when he discovers that, you know, he just goes ballistic because, you know, if you... And also remember, I was writing this all during like the Trump years too. It's like when 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 non-truths are being told to you, and you don't have access to the truth, how are you going to make a decision if you don't have access to the truth? And when we have all this false things being told to us, you know, on the internet, you know, it, so that was kind of playing on me too. Is is you know the fact that. Uh, the very way we're getting information now is not dependable. So that was kind of reflected in this this thing of Arlo realizing that the people that were supposed to tell him the truth were lying to him, and how was he going to be able to have a happy life if he couldn't even make a decision based on real information? Mm -hmm. So that echo chamber, even though he's deaf, it kind of the metaphorically it's an echo chamber. It, yeah, well, uh, yeah, it was it was just being lied to. Um, yeah, no, it was an echo chamber yeah. of just what they wanted him to believe. And then he has right. this person who, you know, by their religion is an agent of Satan, this gay man who comes in and he's – and all Cyril does in the beginning of the book is just be an appropriate interpreter, interpret everything that's happening in the room. And then he has the other Jehovah's Witness interpreter saying, you don't need to interpret that. He doesn't need to know that. And Cyril's like, oh, boy, hell he doesn't. This is my job. But he tries to be polite, like, oh, I understand that. You're the long-term interpreter. But isn't it good that Arlo gets to know everything that's happening? Yes, yes, that class he wants to take, 
he can try. Our job is just to interpret. You know, basically saying like what our job is, which is just to be the the voice and the ears for the person. And bit like Arlo getting that information, getting to know, oh, this is what an interpreter is supposed to be doing. Oh, I'm getting all the information in the room. Oh, I'm getting the expression of the teacher on her face. And oh, there's something called the ADA. I actually have rights. I have rights as a disabled person to these things. And yeah, so that's what the book's about. Boy, I gotta complain about this book. They're doing all these bad things. How does your process work then? Um, and I say this because it seems like you're very um, in tune to things, like you're talking about the Trump years and you're talking about you know the uh, ins and outs of, let's say, this business, as in like the uh, interpreting and all that, um, because you've lived it. Um, so with all of that in, in, in your mind, can you just sit down and write? At planned times, can you just kind of go, okay, well, I'm going to write uh, four hours a day for the next five days and sit and write, just turn it on? Or does the outside interfere with your feelings enough that you can't write? No, no. It doesn't, I mean, it, the outside might affect what I write about, but yeah, no, I I just have become very disciplined over the years. You know, it's like I'm older, you know, I'm not, I'm not a kid, and I... I'm just very aware that it's 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 a sin to waste time, and so I and I also realized in a really shallow way that I years and years and years ago um, developed. I, I lean into my neuroses, and one of my uh, neuroses is my guilt. I feel extremely guilty about things, and I leaned into feeling guilty about not going to the gym many decades ago. I leaned into that like. Blair, if you don't go to the gym five days a week, you should feel like a piece of crap. And um, and I do. If I don't go to the gym really more like three to five days a week, I feel really bad about myself. And then I don't do anything until I get to the gym. And it occurred to me that I wasn't doing that with my writing. And I'm like, there's – okay, I'm sorry to jump to this. But you know a book called uh, The War of Art? Not The Art of War, but The War of Art? It's this, it's this great book where it talks about vilifying hmm. anything that stops you from doing your art. And I think that book affected me, and I started doing that. I started, like, being, Blair, if you're really a writer, you need to be writing a lot more. You need to be writing at least five days a week. You need to put your writing first. How are you going to do this and earn a living, which is the big question of writers. You know, I'm not writing in TV anymore. I'm not getting a lot of money for that. I have to work this other job that I love very much, but writing is my first primary purpose. You know, how, how do I do this? And I, I reshape my life to where writing comes first. I don't take a job, generally, unless it's a job I can actually write on. Once in a while, you'll get these interpreting jobs where they just need you there in case that person shows up. They're my favorite jobs. They're very rare. But when that happens, it's like I grab them because I can just write the whole time and be getting paid. Um, but otherwise, I don't take a, a, an interpreting job until one or later in the afternoon because I'm a morning writer. And then I, whenever I go on vacation, it's just about writing. Uh, and I just started putting that first. So I don't really have problems sitting down and writing. And uh, when that awful, those awful Trump years were happening, uh, I didn't, I still wrote. I mean, I didn't really, I thought about it a little bit, like the, 
what I just described as far as the influence of, of deception and, and, uh, like the Russian misinformation campaign that went on online. I mean, that was there and that like was a little bit in my head, but yeah, right. I won't let stuff like that stop me from doing this thing that I really love. Now, mind you, it doesn't mean that's always easy, but I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, I will write. I have several things I work on, and if for something like the novel, if I'm, I'm working on a new novel and I'm, I'm at a standstill, I have something else that I'm working on that I can always write on. But I make sure that, you know, I write, you know, five to six to seven days a week, minimum five days a week, um, I write. Yeah. So now, do you not uh, use a Sharpie when you sign books because of Sharpie Gate with hurricanes? Hey, what, what is, what's, what's Sharpie Gate? I didn't read about this. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh you know, when the uh, the hurricane was going through uh, Florida, uh, remember um, uh, Trump made a comment <laughs> that it was going to go through Alabama. Oh, right. <laughs> and then uh, he, uh, it wasn't. And then so what he did is he added it, and so we call it Sharpie Gate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. It on the screen. So, so I was just Oh, no, I actually don't. I don't use Sharpie. You know, I probably should. I use, <laughs> I use this other, like, kind of really flowy pen, but probably a Sharpie would be better, wouldn't it? I'm probably ripping off these poor readers by not using a Sharpie. I didn't think about that. Um, you guys steal a lot more from Al. Al's got a lot of books out, and I steal from everything he does. Yeah. <laughs> I have only got 29. 29? I, I mean, when I was writing plays, I wrote insanely fast. I used to write an hour and a half play, the first draft, in four days, which would go on the stage. Uh, we would rehearse initially one day, and they'd be off book. The actors would be off book. And then eventually we were allowed to rehearse two days because the place we were doing, it was a serialized play. And I, I was young. I was 29, 30. And so I wrote really fast. I didn't think that you needed to take a long time. But, like, writing novels, I guess because I just write a lot more than I need to write because I'm, I just get curious and I let the story kind of unfold for me. I, I don't want to take eight yeah. years again. That's kind of an organic way, right? You kind of work organically. Yeah, I mean, I, I do an outline, which is hilarious because they never follow it. Me, the characters. <laughs> no, I write the outline like a lot of people talk about, and as soon as the uh, the actors, the characters start uh, doing doing their dialogue and their action, they just take it wherever they are, and it's like, oh, oh, wow, and I'm just like following them along, and then. I, although, like, about a third of the way through, I'll know where I want it to end, and I'll often write the last chapter. But then, like, between the third of the way through and the and that last chapter, a lot of surprises will happen, but I know I'm going to end up there. Um, but it's like the second book definitely took a lot faster, and hopefully yeah. these next books will, will be faster, because, as I said, now I know I actually can write. So, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Well, each, 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 pro- each time will become a... A different, you know, there's a lot of things you already know. And so when you're putting together another project, you have things already, you're ahead of the game that way. So it will become faster. I was just going to say that, or it's like me, I can write it in three weeks, but then my editor takes about six months ripping me up. <laughs> <laughs> and what, and what, Michael, what, is, what kind of stuff do you write? Uh, well, mostly nonfiction lately. I have three fiction novels as well. So I I know how when you get into that world, you're just it's just an exciting thing. Although uh, I'm also like Al, where we I love discovery and 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 uh, kind of writing about it, and then uh, it's it, I, I'm hooked on both actually. 
Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I have no desire to write nonfiction. I mean, writing, I'm working on a memoir thing too, um, as, as I'm working on this other thing. But I, I, I kind of, do both of you write about like murders and stuff like that? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might hit you. I might hit you up because like for that that novel that I abandoned, the Deathline Detective novel, I definitely might want to hit you up and ask you just what I'm not about like not to read or anything, but just like what I need to know in getting through something that's a bit more genre like that, because I've never written anything like that. Um, so oh, yeah. I might hit yeah. you up. I've been there, done that. Met met the killer in prison. I've done, I've done, I've done most things um, to to write different parts of of stories, which is good. I think it's great. Um, I've learned so much um, in my life and writing, and uh, it's it's as much for me as it is for a reader. Hmm. Yeah. That's the way to say it, you know. Yeah. Um, I learn from my characters whether they're alive or whether I've created them. Definitely. I mean, I, I do feel like it, with this second book, especially because it's much more autobiographical. Um, so many of the characters for me at like different stages of my life, and like I just started pilfering more and more of my life. That this second book is like a magical, realistic version of this period of my life. That it is. It's uh, it's called Disco Witches, by the way. So ah. you can tell that it's very autobiographical. Um, and <laughs> well, I was going to say, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Moonwalk and all the way. Exactly. 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 Well, now let's talk. Let's talk about you. Okay. So, are you big into readers? Are you big into social media? Are you big into websites? How do you like readers or fans or people to? to interact with you or to find you like where where does one go to find you can find me anywhere anywhere pretty I'm not much talking, i'm not talking about <laughs> scruff <I was laughs> oh trust me trust me they find me there no um i mean facebook instagram i'm not on twitter because i got off with the the elon musk thing uh but i'm on facebook and uh instagram they're the probably the best ways to get a hold of me. My website, you can get a hold of me there, blairfell.com. I love talking to readers. And uh, I'm also on TikTok, too. So it's Blairfell. I don't use a pseudonym anywhere. Do you dance on TikTok? No, I love talking to readers. It's like one of my favorite things. <laughs> I do dance on TikTok. No, not yet, but I will. I will for you. I will dance. Oh, yeah, no, I do. I do a lot of book groups, too, actually. I talk to a lot of book groups, which is fun. I've, I've, I've talked to deaf book groups. I talked to a giant book group up at a library system up in Massachusetts, which was really fun. I talked to interpreters and workshops, book groups. Um, it's amazing how different every single book group is and the questions they ask. I, I always think they're going to ask me the same questions, and they don't. And it's it's really fun. It's really fun. I guess what's fun about this book is I don't have to just talk about this book. They start asking me questions about the interpreting stuff and deaf blindness and and you know, all that stuff I know from my 30-year career doing that. So it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. Well, it, sound, it sounds pretty amazing. This is great. Um, I'm glad I found you and the book and, and everything. It's, it's, it's exciting. My nipples are hard. <laughs> my job is done. My job is done. Your job is there done. There we go. Well, there we go. Well, you can retire. If you could retire on my nipples, <laughs> boy, <laughs> wouldn't that be the world? Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. So now we are talking to the author, Blair Fell, and, of course, his book is The Sign for Home, and it's a novel. It's out everywhere. It'll be up on our website as well. 
you need to go out and, and buy this book. It's a great book, great writer, and, and yes, hardcover please. and paperback. Yeah. And audiobook, and audiobook. Audio, that's yeah, right. audiobook for people like me, the ones that <laughs> can hardly see. Well, Blair, I really appreciate you being here. I really do. It's been oh, a thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Great speaking with you. Good, good talking to you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.